Hey everybody, welcome to Samosa Caucus. This is Salas. This is Rags. So today we're going to talk about three topics. Um, we're going to talk about Rokana, we're going to talk about immigration, and we're going to talk about Raj Shah. So I think immig- immigration touches, um, it's kind of an overlapping topic there. So let's start off with Rokana. So uh, Rokana, for those who don't know, uh, represents uh, the 17th Congressional District of California. Uh, that just happens to be where I live now. Um, it's a Democrat. Uh, born in Philly, actually. He was born in Philly, really? He was born in Philly. Uh, his parents are Punjabi. And for those who are not going to actually read the Wikipedia article, another nice piece of trivia that was in there was uh, his maternal grandfather, uh, actually was fighting alongside Gandhi and Lala Lajpat Rai and uh, spent uh, time in jail uh, when he was, uh, he was fighting for uh, independence from the British. So, yeah, so dude's, dude's interesting. And then other than that, he's a, he's a econ uh, major with, uh, who went to Yale and uh, specializes in IP law, which is probably a good thing being in Silicon Valley. That's uh, intellectual property. Yes, intellectual property law, sorry. You know, there, there's more about his like background in politics and such, but again, those interested can just go check out the Wikipedia article. I uh, just wanted to give a quick introduction, but he worked He worked with Obama um, uh, at the uh, Department of Commerce, and uh, he, he's got, you know, he's, he's been in politics for a bit, um, not like too long. And then in... Uh, what year in, did he work for Obama? Do you know? Or did you just say that? It, it was uh, two, 2009. 2009. Okay. So early on. Early on. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was very early. Um, and then in 2016, uh, I believe he was elected to um, elected into office and he beat uh, Mike Honda. Mike Honda was in office for 12 years um, and uh, he, you know, took on uh, Mike and... Uh, you know, he came. He uh, came out victorious, so which is a pretty big deal. You know, both Asian Americans, right? Both Asian Americans. Yeah, Mike Honda is uh, of uh, Japanese descent. Uh, I had a chance to go to one of his town hall meetings, and this is one of the things Rokana has been doing um, uh, actually, uh, which is he, he has these frequent town hall meetings, and uh, you know, he, he's a, he's a really uh, good speaker. Before then, I, I hadn't really looked. Uh, looked him up too much. Uh, I knew a little bit about him, you know, the general stuff. Uh, but that was the first time I, I went in, like, you know, to, to just listen to... You said you you heard about it from a newsletter or something like that, right? So, okay, that's, that's, that's a funny story uh, about how I actually knew about this town hall. It wasn't that I was looking up town halls or looking up Rokanda. Uh, what happened was I, I'm, I'm part of a WhatsApp group where uh, somebody forwarded uh, this... Uh, you know, this event link for the town hall and said, hey, you know, uh, Rokana is going to be here and he's going to be talking about immigration and about H-1B stuff. And, you know, we should really show up uh, in numbers because we want to we want to give a good impression. And we want to make sure we represent our side of it and, and show him how important it is that, you know, uh, how many people are dependent on H-1B. Um, and so, uh, when I went into the event, it was like a high school auditorium. Um, and so, it was, you know, it was pretty packed. Uh, there were quite a few people there. And uh, pretty early on, uh, I think they took like a quick poll of like the people who were affected by 
H1B or they, they were, you know, they were worried about the H1B. Oh, man, like I, it was a, it was a lot of people who stood up. You know, I also found uh, a little interesting because, uh, you know, people who have the H1B, though they form as constituents, uh, they're not voters. Right. Um, so but he he kind of addressed that uh, several times. Uh, I. I don't want to go through like all the um, stuff in the town hall necessarily, but I, I kind of want to talk about some of his uh, stances on things and the way he approached uh, talking about uh, H-1B and other things like that. So uh, one of a few of the things, a uh, few of the highlights were that he, he really is um, a very good speaker. He's very uh, pretty intelligent dude. He's uh, pretty smart. He actually went out to uh, Eastern Kentucky. This is a small town called Paintsville. He went there to try and talk to them further. So there, there's like a little program that tra- trains a lot of uh, uh, local folks to in computer technology and coding and, you know, uh, a lot of tech stuff. And uh, he is a really big proponent of uh, going to a lot of the small cities across uh, the U.S. and, uh, you know, encouraging them, uh, encouraging Silicon Valley to invest in these uh, uh, small towns and cities and places where, you know, unemployment's like, really high compared to uh, the rest of the country and being able to train people there for skills um, in order to try and hire them into the tech industry. Um, and so he in a, he has also been, I, I, one of the things that uh, I read was he, is, he was kind of like touted as the ambassador for Silicon Valley uh, in that sense. Like he he's always like kind of going out to bat for, you know, saying, hey, you know, the tech companies, you guys should really go and hire there. And he's going out to all these places and saying, hey, you know, work on this. Like, here's how we can partner up. And I, I think this is really great. We should really try and push to get people uh, into the industry. And so one of the things he did was he uh, actually had a um, bill alongside Kevin McCarthy to help veterans uh, basically use GI funding for tech training programs. Um, and this was passed and it was signed by Trump, actually. Stuff like that. So he's, he's kind of been like reaching out, you know, to folks here and there. One of the reasons why I say like he, he is an interesting Democrat is one of the things he believes in strongly is uh, his, his foreign policy actually tilts towards the libertarian front a little bit and that he is a heavy believer in a non-interventionist policy. He believes that we just shouldn't like interfere with other people uh, in, in other countries or if, if stuff goes down. Like he didn't think that it was a good idea to like escalate in Iraq. Uh, he he definitely doesn't support the Syrian thing. He he's just like if there are other countries that are doing what they're doing. Uh, he even said, you know, I, like I wasn't down with calling for Assad to step down, even though he's he's a bad dude. But that's like their business. Like we shouldn't be getting in other people's business. Like we should be doing our thing here, and we should try to figure out the best way to, you know, keep ourselves keep our people safe so he's like Rand paul in that way i think right uh, they wrote a op-ed together in the la times about a non-interventionist policy how about um selling weapons to places like saudi arabia what would his stance be on that i i i, I don't think he would be down with that but maybe if we have him on the podcast <laughs> that would be a good question to ask him true that <laughs> uh, so but but he one of the things he wants is he wants uh us uh, he wants the U.S. to have a open line of communication with the North Korean military. North Korea is the only country in the world that the U.S. does not have a straight line with militarily. Uh, and he he's like really pushing to try and reestablish that. Obviously, like it's falling on deaf ears. But it's it's interesting that the, that situation, though, because um, 
Moon, right? Uh, Prime Minister Moon from South Korea. He got elected on more of an engagement policy with North Korea. And I think uh, Trump's kind of rocket man comments have kind of, uh, I, I think, have forced North Korea to to say, okay, U.S. is beyond hope. Let's uh, engage with South Korea. Uh, on the North-South thing, there's there's some, you know, other stuff too, because there's reports that a lot of people are like, well, don't trust North Korea. You know, this is just like they're just trying to uh, engage, but they're not being very genuine. And you have to be careful because they might just say and do whatever uh, to make you think that they're on your side or they want to be peaceful, but then you just can't trust them. And yeah, if they were just buying time just so their uh, technology advances. Right, right. And so that's a lot of people believe that's a case. But I, I'm like, I mean, what is what are our options, right? Like, at the very least, if you're talking to them, and if at some point something they slip up with something or just let something out, then you at least have a chance to find out like just saying no, we're just never going to talk is not really going to help anything. Right. Um, but I mean, so he, he's he's big on that. And, and then um Recently, one of the things apparently he was really worried that North Korea is going to attack the valley. Um, his his thought process is like, well, Silicon Valley is like starting to become a pretty major hub, um, and you know we're, you know, as, as tech innovation as everything else. If if he if uh, Kim uh, wanted to uh, nuke us, like he could nuke he he has. I mean, they've said that they have the capability to launch an ICBM all the way to Washington, but um, launching it to Cali shouldn't be that hard, right? So um, he's kind of like, we, we really should de-escalate this, <laughs> you know, because so he doesn't nuke us, uh, which is funny. Um, but, but but like going back to the town hall, um, so some of the other stuff that uh, he, he talked about was, um, you know, with regards to, uh, which I don't know, he is one of, very few members, I think six, maybe members of the House, who are a part of the um, No PAC caucus, so they don't take any uh, donations from PACs at all, um, and uh, which, you know, given given how the playing field is right now, it's a, that's a pretty big, uh, uh, you know, I, I would say like that's that's a pretty big stance to take uh, as a first term. Uh, congressman, you know, like uh, I know when he got elected, he had a lot of support from the tech community, right? I mean, that's the that's kind of the region that he's in. Yeah. So I'm sure he got a lot of donations from wealthy people, even if it wasn't from PACs. Per uh, se. I mean, yeah, sure, but I mean, there's there's a difference, right? With PACs, like you don't know where the money's coming from, right? Really, like, right? You, okay. So yeah. like, it, PACs are just more like black boxes. You know, it's wealthy. At the end of the day, it's wealthy people giving money everywhere. But, you know, like, well, but he he does. Uh, one of the things he's, he talked about there was he, he had this idea. He, he was working with this uh, constitutional scholar named Bruce Ackerman. Um, and one of the things they're trying to propose is like to give these democracy dollars. So basically give every American 50 bucks to spend on the elections to like donate to whoever you want. What do you mean everybody had 50 bucks so it's like community community money is that? No, you would yeah, every American you give everyone like these democracy dollars and you give everyone 50 bucks. You like select where you want to put your money but it's not actually your money. So you can't actually spend it on anything else. But like you can't right, right like it's it's specifically to spend on election cycles. 
So like you, it's not that you can take that $50 and spend it at the grocery store. You, you have to take that $50 and spend it directly into the election. Got it. So, so this is an interesting thought. I mean, it's something out there, you know, there's a different way to think about it. And so the idea is that everyone would have some money to spend on the elections. And so that would change things. Uh, so he's got like some interesting ideas like that, but, um, he the main one obviously one of the main things that he wanted to talk about was h1b and he he's on the side of all the people who are worried about h1bs and he agrees that it shouldn't be where it is right now and that there should be a clearer path towards citizenship and uh even for daca recipients and he's trying to co-sponsor bills to um try and push the agenda there but what's that policy exactly just to get more uh H1B. Yeah, I mean, it's it's some of the stuff along the same lines as uh, what we've been hearing, which is, uh, you know, general pool, uh, not based on, you know, not quotas based on country, uh, quicker processing, um, better kind of processing of uh, people who are already in queues or who've been waiting in line kind of to get their H1B uh, towards green card, uh, H4s, uh, or the work authorization for spouses, uh, for people who've been here. I think it's it's not very well understood. Uh, and, you know, I think we've mentioned that before in in, the, in one of the previous episodes, but just want to kind of say it again, it's like, you, you have to be in this country like six years. You, you'd have to have like had your H1B for six years. And on top of that, you had to, the primary uh, visa holder, would have to be uh, approved for an EAD or work authorization, which is the next step over towards a green card. And then your spouse can apply for an H-4 visa. And then... Yeah, it's so complicated already. And it's just... Well, I mean, it's 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 complicated. But I mean, the way a lot of people perceive it is like, oh, you know, all these immigrants coming in and they all get H-1s and then their spouses just get, you know, these H-4s and they take all the jobs. And it's not true. It's like people who've basically been hanging out on the sidelines for like many years like six years is a long time yeah i think the, the argument that they're making is that um there's this chain migration that's happening that people are bringing over their cousins and their like nephews you, you can't do that i mean it's sister, not even whatever. i know you can't do that and you can only bring like parents grandparents kids um and like that process even takes forever that process takes like seven years so you're you're sitting there trying to get over your spouse you're trying to get over like your kids so you're like working here uh sending money back because you don't have your family's not here yet and you really want your family to come i mean it's it's even more right like for those kinds of things like the problem is it's it's a psychological thing like you know you you see your you know, I had a buddy of mine, like, um, who, who basically, uh, was working here and he was working at Apple as a contractor and, uh, through this consulting company. And, you know, he, he had his H1, uh, and, uh, you know, he'd been away from his family for over a year, like his wife and his like young daughter was like four or five. And he was just like, man, I, you know, this is getting really hard because I can't go back until my H1 gets, you know, renewed. So he basically just couldn't see his kid for a year of her life and and not at like a very young age. Like this is still like at five, six years old, like your, your kid starts knowing and noticing. Right. And it's hard. So and so he ended up actually just saying, you know, screw it. I'm going back. And he left um, and he went back to um, back to India and he, he found a job at a company there. And um, yeah, it, it's just, you know, 
that's I think that's a problem, right? Like we've alluded to this before, where you know what when people come in on visas trying to immigrate to this country, they're they're taking a chance and they're taking you know coming to this new country and trying to assimilate and trying to learn you know all the values here and like you know be a part of society and not to mention the fact that they're all paying taxes. Everyone's paying taxes, you know, like you're still getting like all this tax revenue from them, and you know. 12 years in H1 slave and, you know, it's, uh, then you maybe get your green card and, you know, and then you get to actually go and try to find work doing what you want to do. Because you're tied to the employer and that H1 status. Right. And I mean, it's, yeah, but I mean, like, and as we've said before, you know, it's like your, it's your job title, right? If your job title changes, that's different than what's on your H1, then we go back to go back to the drawing board like you, you go back to square one man i mean it's, it's crazy right so so you kind of have to even if you want to do something else you don't have an option because that's what your h1 is for it's for that one job function and so that's what you got to do so uh, Ro- rokana's uh i guess his he's taking a view that we should be more open to h1b or just like we should keep it as it is he wants to improve uh the processing of h1b he wants us to increase quotas uh, he's on pro-immigration side, which being an you know child of immigrants, you know, would be a would be an expected stance to take, I suppose. Um. So on the other side, from Rokana, well, you found somebody, I guess, that you wanted to talk about that uh, you related to. I kind of found the opposite. I found a couple of uh, South Asian Americans in the government that I, I had a strong, I guess, negative reaction to. They're both actually around my age, similar to my background, but they just uh, found a very different path. So Raj Shah, he's currently the deputy press secretary. He's 33 years old. His parents were married in India. He then moved to the US and he was born in Chicago and born and raised in Connecticut. Um, most of his family is democratic, but he just realized that he had a lot of disagreements with his his family, and in particular around um, 9-11 and the way that America was handling terrorism around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, how America is handling the economic, was handling the economic downturn at the time and size of the government. So those were his major issues. So that both a couple foreign policy issues, a couple economic policy issues. He worked initially for on both sides of the aisle um, for Chris Shays, I believe, a Republican in Connecticut, and then Joe Lieberman, who was a Democrat. He had some brushes with the law. He was arrested for a DUI and reckless driving during, while he was a campaign manager in uh, 2010. That So that knocked him down for a couple years. Um, but then by 2012, he was the deputy research director of the Republican National Committee. Um, and then he became the head of opposition research in 2016. Yeah, so this is like an interesting role. While he was on Jeb Bush's team, he called Trump a deplorable, referred to the Access Hollywood tape as some justice. He, uh, and we know this because some of his emails have leaked. Um, he emailed this friend on October 7th of 2016 and said, I'm kind of enjoying this, uh, meaning the ho- Access Hollywood tape, some justice. Well, does it, wasn't there something like he somehow orchestrated that coming out or he orchestrated so something? The, the, yeah, the, the thing he orchestrated was the tape of Trump praising Obama and Hillary, which obviously were not, uh, which are not loved 
on the right. So he was trying to get Trump to be taken less seriously as a conservative or as a anti-liberal. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, but that's again, like if he's doing opposition research for Jeb Bush, I guess like. Yeah, 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 I can I can see that. I, I think it's the, 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 the fact that he said, and this is a quote, I honestly don't think it's the worst thing he's done, but somehow he gets a pass for all the other acts means that at, like he he really thought Trump was a bad dude basically yeah he didn't, he didn't like him he didn't like him really. yeah he thought he was a a bad person basically but soon after the election he actually joined Trump's team um and now he's yeah deputy he's quickly risen to deputy press secretary and and he's been and he's kind of been stirring the pot a little bit i think that's why possibly some of his emails are leaked yeah yeah he's definitely been more and more out there so he's stepped in for Sarah Huckabee Sanders on a few occasions um and the way the Trump administration is moving towards um restricting uh family reunification so as we were just talking about it takes seven years as is to to get your spouse your kids like to start working on that process. Trump has actually called it chain migration. They're saying keep it to spouse and kids and that's it. You can't even sponsor your parents. No, no, they're trying to they're trying to cut H4s also. Uh no, they specifically yeah, they they want to cut H4s, but cutting the H4s does not mean that you can't have your spouse here. So like the H4 is only uh, the only point of the H4 is to allow you to work. So they they want you to so idea would be for example uh, you know someone immigrates here from you know somewhere else uh, they get a job they have an H one B you can bring your family in and they can come and live with you and and stay here but what they can't do is uh, uh, for example your husband or your wife can't really go and uh, work uh, anywhere uh, and so until you go from an H-1B to a green card, at which point your family gets a green card and then, you know, they're eligible for employment. You, They do not have that option uh, or they don't have that option where at, at you know, X number of years, you uh, switch from uh, switch to your work authorization. Uh, and at which point it's past six years, you've been at work, work authorization, you've got the primary uh, H-1B holder has work authorization, now your spouse can apply for an H-4, and they can also uh, work while you're waiting in line for the green card. So that's basically what, what that is, right? So it's not, so so just to be clear, it's not like you come here in H-1B, you have to wait six or seven years for you to bring your spouse or your kid. You, you can bring them here, they just won't be able to, they'll just have to hang out at home. Like they can't go and work somewhere. Right, so that's what they're trying to do with limiting the age four. But um, in addition, the way they're trying to portray it right now is that there's something called, quote unquote, chain migration, when really what's happening is, like you're saying, you're working to bring your kids, your uh parents and your spouse here to have like your unit family um and that's actually how oddly enough melania trump's family got came here that's the way that donald trump's family came here uh donald trump's mom's family but chain migration just again i'm sorry i just gonna keep uh keep harping on this a little bit but i think we have to be clear because chain migration is again a little different from you know different kind like so chain migration is like 
I, I guess like I would get here, I would get a green card. Then I would sponsor my parents and then I would sponsor my brother or sister. It would be unlikely to get it at that point. That's not that's not a thing that's like commonly happening. No, it does. It does commonly happen. It is, it is actually fairly common. And a lot of people in the 80s and 90s who immigrated here, uh, that's kind of what happened. Um, so like, you know, you can you can basically uh, go, um, you can get your spouses, you can get your parents. See, because like once you get the parents, right? Like, so what would happen is the parents would then be able to sponsor the rest of their kids. So if you have five kids and one of them makes it over, then the the chain migration with the idea of what chain migration is, the evil that the chain migration is, <laughs> is like, is I, I'm here and I have like, you know, four brothers and sisters uh, in living in India and my parents live there. I come here in my 20s. I get my green card. I then sponsor my parents to get the green card. My parents come here. Uh, five years, they get citizenship. Um, and uh, once they have that, then they start sponsoring. I don't know, this one, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think you have to be a citizen and then you can sponsor your, uh, once the parent becomes a citizen, then you can sponsor the rest of your children. So the next four adult children that you have, you can basically say, hey, here are my, I have four other kids. I am sponsoring all of them for a green card because I, I want them to come live with me. And then those four other kids may have their own families, right? They may have be married and have their own kids. But once one of the, uh, one person gets a green card, then the family gets a green card. So now you, you know, the initial one person has now sponsored uh, just parents, that's two people, then their four uh, other kids and their potential families and their kids. So that's how, you know, it would, I guess that would be what you would uh, refer to as chain migration. And quite a few people have come over this way. Um, in fact, like my family, a lot of people in my family, that's how, you know, we came over. I know a lot of my friends, you know, whose family is sim very similar, um, either the either the uh, parent who, who came here sponsored their own siblings uh, or they sponsored their parents who sponsored all the kids. And how, how long does that process take? Then? I mean, it was obviously way shorter back in the day. Uh, now, I, I would imagine that it's a pretty big backlog. So they, I, I would assume at the very least, let's say you were a green card. Now, you would have had to come here to this country. If I, if I came to this country right now, today, I, I at a minimum have to wait 12 to 13 years to get the green card. Let's say five years by the time you get become sworn in as a citizen, you have to be here over five years as a green card holder, as a permanent resident. So you're talking about 18-ish years now. At 18-ish years, then once you're a citizen, you can sponsor your parents. You're talking about another, uh, you know, I think if you if you sponsor that way, it's shorter than if you go via H-1B. So I think that process only takes maybe three to five years. Um, and so you're talking five, four to five more, three to five years. So let's say five years uh, uh, to take the max amount. That's like between 22 to 23 years. This is 22 to 23 years from if I arrive today in the country on an H-1B. And that's for, that's just for your parents well so at 22 to 23 years from now i could get my parents a citizenship my parents would be citizens here at which point they can start sponsoring another five years you know from that point is when they would become citizens and then they would be able to sponsor their kids so you're talking another five years 
which is like 28 years, 23 from 23, like 20, the latter part of close to 30 years, 25 to 30 years. So if I landed in this country today, then um, I would maybe be able to get a part of my family, uh, my parents, and if, if we were talking about full chain migration that way and my brothers, whatever, that would be like almost 30 years from now. So, I mean, I don't understand like how you're going after this. <laughs> It's like the, the cycle time. Well, well, I mean, the ads show that like somebody coming over and then just kind of sending a truck back and bringing everybody over. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, it's it's you know just like everything else, it's pandering towards this fear and xenophobia and like this idea that you know we're, there's just an open. Uh, they almost make it sound as if like the gates are wide open and everyone can. No, man, it's like a long, drawn out process that is not only hard i mean you have to understand that like you have to even be in an economic situation where it's feasible for you to actually come and come here and have that happen like you know think about how much money from now until the next 30 years i would have to make enough money to support myself and my family i would then have to have enough money to to of that money a lot of times you know people i guess you know if if you're unaware of it uh you know the time it takes for someone to come here and make enough money they're already supporting their family back home to make money uh, to send money back and then at the same time accumulate enough wealth so you can buy property or do whatever bring your parents over here make sure like they're here their insurance like safety for them all of their stuff and then for them to be here a certain period of time and then for them to sponsor someone and then come, it's you know it's a long drawn out. So something like that, what I was talking about initially is like I came here and then I sponsored my parents and my parents sponsored my four brothers and sisters, whatever, uh, in that hypothetical. If we're talking today, it's 30 years, right? It's not something that's like timeline feasible. Yeah. So then if if, 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 you, if you look at the math and it's 30, 30 years, then why are they making it such a hot button issue? It's not to cut down on that 30 years situation it's so they can cut down on immigration today for example um moving the h1b minimum salary from 60 to 90 that kind of situation make saying that as long as any h1b works at a company they can't do any like any layoffs of that basically at that company uh, for a similar similar wall so kind of they're kind of closing the loopholes somewhat and and i think those things like that that kind of that reform side of things is something that i'm supportive of because the only thing that's doing is enabling these middlemen consultant companies who are fleecing people now i, I, I want to make it clear that it's not like all consultant companies are doing this right there's there's a there's just like any other group there's a group of consulting companies um, and I, I wouldn't be able to give you percentages, but they are put under very, very like cramped conditions. Like initially, if you if you look at um, some of the young younger uh, twenty uh, like mid twenties people who come here, they stay four or five people in like a two bedroom house, six seven people in like a house, you know, like a regular house or something. They'll rent out of the company will rent out a house and they'll just put them up there, you know, two or three people to a room. And, you know, they basically bunk up there to save whatever money they can because they're paid so little because these intermediate companies take a lot of that chunk of that money, that salary that goes in. So like reforming those things, like closing down those kinds of gaps, because what is the need for an H-1B, right? Like if you're talking about the H-1B as a visa, it is there because I as a company, if I'm a company owner and I'm trying to hire people and I say, okay, 
you know, I need uh, to find someone who has, let's say, uh, experience with big data, uh, and they have to have SAP training as well, and they need to be a project manager. I don't know, I'm throwing some stuff out there, right? So you, you have this combination of stuff. I've put this, I, we really need someone with these credentials. I've put this out there. There's nobody in the market. We're just not getting any hits, or we can't find anyone qualified. But I looked over to this country X, and I found this candidate who's willing to relocate to the US and come and work here, who has all of these credentials and who has all this experience that makes sense for me to hire them into this position. And so I want them to come here. And so you you then are saying, okay, well, you know, this is why, this is my reasoning for it, because I cannot find someone with this expertise in this country right now, so I have to hire from outside the country. Uh, and w when that's your actual goal or that that's your reasoning, then it's, it's sound reasoning, right? It makes sense. But think about like at $60,000 H-1B, if that's your uh, lower end, you then are hiring someone who may have worked for several years as a software developer, let's say, uh, overseas, and then you're looking for a software developer and you hire that person and say, hey, well, I need a software developer. I just don't have anyone with these language sets uh, to work here. Then the problem, the skew happens because a company then isn't willing to hire someone at a lower level, perhaps train them up and then, you know, bring them up to speed and then get them to a point where you want to like, where, where you've armed them now with these, uh, with this new knowledge and these new skills and they, they will now help your company or they'll like, they'll work here, you know, and now by doing that, what you're also doing is you're helping the local pool of uh, talent, you're improving that pool, right? Like you're the, the people who graduate out of colleges here, or the people who are trying to make transitions out of other careers, whatever it is. And actually, the, the value is like starting to do that more now. Uh, Google has like programs like that. I know, um, I think Apple does too. I'm not sure about some of the other companies, but I've definitely seen like job listings uh, where, you know, Google is like, it, it's like an open staff developer position at Google. If you're just out of college, you can apply to those and Google will train you up and it'll, they'll teach you all these languages, they'll teach you all this stuff, and then you, you kind of get uh, a first shot at any of the openings that Google has. It's like a temporary year and a half program. But at that point, they've taught you so much that you now have the ability to go and market your skills at other companies, right? So it helps improve the quality of the talent that's coming through. Whereas like, if you just keep saying, well, at 60, I'm just gonna pay someone 60K to come over and do this work because I can't hire someone. I don't know how genuine that is, you know what I mean? Like I, because, so I feel like maybe your your lower end salary for H1s should kind of be tied alongside some factor of something. Uh, I don't know if some kind of wage increase or some kind of, uh, I don't know what number you were tied to, but it should keep increasing technically because the lower end of someone with a certain skill set that you cannot find in this country should be paid like more, right? You know, a higher level you go um, of someone with like more skills, technically you should be paying them more money, not less money than the market would, uh, than you would get in the local market. So in theory, like just having a citizenship versus not shouldn't give you that much of a difference of salary. But that also means that those lower end jobs that can't be filled, it exposes the reality of the situation, which is either that, you know, there are not enough graduates in engineering, which we know is a, is a fact. Um, and so then you need to start innovating and finding out, okay, how are we going to improve our worker pool? Like, how are we going to fill these? Not just by saying, oh, we need more immigration. It's by saying, okay, it's okay to slow down because we're the ones setting the pace. I don't know. Um, I mean, part of the reason that 
Silicon Valley has been able to set the pace globally is because of the immigration. Sure, like I, I understand that, but you know, at, at a certain point, you you need to you need to look at home and you need to figure out why it is like why is it cheaper for us to go uh, outside and and you know and, and again, I'm not saying this as an anti-immigration stance. I can't make the statement that immigration is bad or that I'm anti-immigration. Uh, or anything like that, because I immigrated to this country. You know, I came in on a uh, on a sponsored green card, and you know, I I got into this country, and you know, I have everything I have now is you know thanks to my opportunities that I've been given. And it would be very ingenuine for me to say, well, you know, it's different for me versus other people. Now, I I will actually say that I I was going down this thought process. Like, I really thought, okay, let me think about this. What if I took that stance? Like, is does this compute? Like, does this make logical sense? And it just can't. You just there's no way to justify you yourself being an immigrant and then um, coming in and saying, well, now there are too many immigrants. We should we should close the door now. <laughs> it's like okay, well, I mean, so the, if the door closed like 15, 20 years ago, then you wouldn't be like you know. That you, you as a person, like you immigrated here, you, would, you wouldn't be here. If it closed 30, 40 years ago, your parents wouldn't have been able to come here and you wouldn't have been here anyway, right? So it changes, right? Those Because of those things, like I, I really think that, um, I, I think it's, uh, we need to make this process more robust because it's it's legitimate, right? Like you have lots of parts of the countries that are like highly unemployed, you know, you have education issues, you have other problems that are where structures breaking down. We are not going and innovating there and trying to find solutions because it is it is cheaper for us to go and pick somebody else from outside and come in. Huh. So that's an interesting theory. So you think if like immigration, if we cut immigration, that there education will get better? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not saying I'm not claiming that. What, what I'm saying is, you need to, uh, I think if, if you're a company in this country and you know that there's a certain population, uh, in a way, this is almost like, I guess, socialist thinking in that sense, right? Where either the government or, or corporations themselves, you know, take it upon themselves to go and develop this talent. And we're, I mean, this is stuff that, we, you know, a lot of people are talking about, right? Like tech-based uh, um, training, like, you know, earlier I uh, referenced Rokanda going to Kentucky, um, something like that, right? Where it's, where it's tech-based training, uh, where, you're, where you're bringing people in and you're saying, okay, this is not typically what you do, but we're going to give you a shot and we're going to train you and we're going to retrain you in this. And it doesn't have to be like everyone's got to be a developer, right? And that's the main thing. Like the tech industry here now is changing their view on a lot of this stuff, right? Like, so you come in from a, a background in anything else, like a liberal arts uh, degree or something else, you come here, you take like a code uh, boot camp uh, or wherever, like you, you get it in one of these dev boot camps, which run like a few months, but again, like it's like 10 to 20K, whatever, but you get into one of these boot camps, they basically ramp you up on a whole bunch of stuff. And if you can make it through that, then you come out on the other side being very, very marketable. And then you're able to go and say, okay, look, I'm now a developer. I'm a front-end designer. I'm a back-end designer, UX, whatever it is. And you're able to like get a job, even though you're like bachelor's maybe, let's say, in like music, you know, like it, it doesn't, like that is not a bound. And so they're, they're opening it up some more now. And those are the kind of things we need. So we need to go to other parts of the country and see how we can like improve that and how, where are the places we can tap into other candidates, right? Um, one of the things that like, that I, I don't know if you caught was after um, the State of the Union address, one of the things that Ro Khanna tweeted out was that Trump never even talked about net neutrality, which is a massive issue, and we really need to address it. When, when I looked at it, I was just like, 
you know, why are you tweeting about that when Trump is like going on about North Korea, he's going on about like all this other random stuff. And he had a good point, which is high speed internet today is as important as getting electricity was to everyone in the 1930s. Like he's, his point is like, if you get like high speed internet in all these places, and if you have the infrastructure for it, and you, you know, everyone's got access to it, then that's going to you know, change the way people look at things and they're going to be taking tech as a more serious career and that's going to push more people to go towards it. And that's the idea, right? To loop it, loop it back to uh, chain migration for a second. Um, I think so. chain chain migration is actually the scare tactic that they're using to, uh, strangely enough, shift focus so they can A, limit immigration, like both legal immigration and illegal immigration. So um, I guess Raj Shah, who doesn't really believe in what Trump's doing, obviously, or like who he is, is signed on to his team because it's career related. He, he saw that he could advance his career by joining on to his team. And now he's giving him quotes like Donald Trump is not anti-immigrant he's anti-illegal immigrant is his direct quote. Although obviously Donald Trump is... They're cracking down on both, and they're trying to muddy the waters and not talk about either of them. The other they see in the news this week had it was very similar line, you could say, to Raj Shah. It's Kash Patel. He drafted the Nunez memo. Nunez is the head of the House Judiciary Committee, but he actually recused himself from looking at any of the Russia stuff. So while everybody's calling it the Nunez memo, Nunez has not looked at any of the evidence that went into drafting that memo. So really, it is the Kosh memo. It's the memo that the House Intelligence Committee that's controlled by Republicans put out that basically said FBI is kind of anti-Trump because they used the dossier, the the one that the British MI5 spy put out uh, about Trump and the Russians uh, which was partly funded by Hillary's campaign, uh, they were like, the FBI looked at that and used that as a reason to put a tap on Carter Page, and so they're anti-Trump, whereas the FBI is like, that's just false, because you've left out all the information about how we verified the information that we needed to actually get the FISA approval. And the FISA approval has been there for 30 years. This is approved by multiple judges, so it's not a new process. Um, it was approved by multiple judges. Even in their FISA application, they put that the dossier was funded by Hillary. So the judges knew that. That wasn't like new information. They had multiple uh, pieces of evidence. Carter Page has been affiliated with Russia. Even like... Laura Ingram, conservative, ultra conservative Laura Ingram was grilling him the other day on his ties to Russia. So it's uh, I don't I don't know why they picked this line in the sand because he's not a very popular guy even on the right. I think they just wanted something to paint the FBI as dirty, and this is what they came up with. I guess it's just a way to cast doubt on anything that uh, Mueller would find, and then if they found something against Trump, then they would just be like, look. FBI is all against me, so they, this has just a, been a rigged setup from the beginning. They were always going to find me guilty of stuff, so you can't believe them, whether you know it's true or not. Like that's what they're trying to put out there. Oddly enough, it is helping a democratic line. In general, party line that Democrats take is 
They're against these attempts to gather information about citizens without their knowledge, without due process. They don't want the government to do that. Um, and I would, I would assume libertarians are on the same page as well uh, as regards to privacy and stuff. It is almost like an anti-Republican thing to do. You know, like the Republicans have been down to the FBI, right? It is, it's weird. So t- tell me more about like Kashyap Patel. Sure. Kashyap Patel grew up in New York. His law degree is from Pace University. And the New York Times article was, Kashyap Patel, main author of Secret Memo, is no stranger to quarrels. Um, and they go into some of his wild history, which is fairly recent. Like, he's also young. He's also 37. I think uh, Raj Shah is 33, so they're both pretty pretty young. So their, like, youthful indiscretions were very recent. Um, in February 2016, Kash Patel got in trouble with the judge, and basically he showed up in jeans and flip-flops um, to a courtroom and... T- and the judge said, the last thing I need here is a bureaucrat who flies down at great expense and ca- causes trouble rather than is actually a productive member of the team. So basically, he got a order of ineptitude was what the judge gave him. So he's like, um, he's a guy who's always looking, even more than Rod Shah, I think, always to advance his career and create um, conflict. I think he started working and people there were pretty surprised about how he got into the DOJ to begin with. Uh, But he did under the former administration. So he's been there for a few years now. So this was his memo. And it's interesting that we we have these kinds of South Asians in uh, in government as well. So we, we look at he's like the anti Preeth Bharara in a way. Yeah, Raja Cash Patel seemed opportunistic, but who in politics is not an opportunist, right? Like I would think that most people try to do whatever they can to you know further their careers. Uh, during the Obama years, uh, I don't know how many people of South Asian descent were uh, highlighted or made big inroads into the administration. Vivek Murthy was big. Yeah, Vivek Murthy did, but that was, if I remember right, that was later, right? Yeah, that was that was later on. So Vivek Murthy, Surgeon General, I think only the last year or two. But other than him, the, the number of people that we've seen of South Asian descent who've kind of come out and been these like key figures, right? Like you have Ajit Pai now with the FCC. You have the uh, Kash Patel who apparently like wrote this memo that's stirring a lot of, you know, causing a lot of concern. Uh, Ajit Pai, net neutrality. You have um, uh, Raj Shah, who's now deputy press secretary. What I was trying to drive towards was the fact that I'm sure there are people looking at some of the South Asians out there, like these guys. And I, I would, I wonder actually if there are people on the left who are like, God, these South Asians, they stabbed us in the back. You know, they were supposed to be on our side. I think uh, we, what we should what we should focus on, what we should highlight as part of this is, if anything, uh, South Asian diaspora is pretty, you know, spread out. You know, there, there are people on both sides of the aisle. We are, you know, part of the American story. And uh, yeah, I mean, so it's, it's, it's good stuff. And this, I think this this is like kind of some of the stuff that we're, we're trying to like push towards, you know, highlighting some of these men and women that are holding it down for us. For sure. Uh, On that, let's uh, sign off and we'll see you guys next time. Yep. Catch you guys next time.